Hi guys, welcome back to the Earthy Delights podcast. Our guest today is Christina Honey Akintoye, a friend of mine from boarding school. We've known each other for over a decade now. I talked to Christina about the recent SARS crisis in Nigeria, and we questioned whether certain negative connotations about African countries and subsequently African immigrants lead to delayed support. Do black lives only matter when they come from America or the UK, or do we care equally about African black lives too? We cover all this and more, so buckle in folks, you're in for a ride. Without further ado, here is Christina Honey Akintoye. Christina Honey, welcome to the Earth is Delights podcast. What's the crack? <laughs> What's the crack? I'm doing good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's so nice to um, appear on someone else's podcast um, rather than my own. So thank you. I really oh, appreciate cool. you guys for having me. It's <laughs> an absolute pleasure. For, for those of you who don't know, you've kind of already mentioned slightly, but what is it that you do? Obviously, I'm guess you have a podcast, um, but what else is it that you do? Yeah. So apart from my podcast, my podcast actually is called Growing and Flourishing. Um, it's on every major podcast platform. Um, it's about personal development and just growing as a human being and um, just enjoying the journey of life. I think people have these goals and, you know, they're so focused on the goals that they don't actually focus on the journey, which is the most valuable part of it all. So um, that's what the podcast is all about. And then um, I am also an entrepreneur. So I have a skincare business for people with eczema in specific, specifically. Um, I'm really passionate about that due to a personal story of mine. And then um, I also work in the field of global communications. So I recently moved to Nigeria, which I know we will talk about, um, to work with the United Nations in the field of global communications. And um, yeah, it was really great. It was during the whole COVID crisis and I was able to kind of like help out with that. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, we've known each other for over a decade now and we went to the same school, um, born school together in Skegness. Um, but obviously you're from London. Um, and But why is it that you've taken the plunge to actually leave London and go back to Nigeria? Um, so... I wasn't necessarily forced out of London. Um, like Seb said, I was born and raised in London. Um, London's all I ever knew. And London was what I thought my future would be at least um, for the next five to five to 10 years. Um, I always had a desire to move to Nigeria, but I didn't think it would be so soon. And situations just arose where I was given the opportunity. So I... What happened after university was that I did my master's for a year. And um, during my master's, I was able to um, start my business and be incubated. Um, and an incubator is just like an organization which helps you grow your business. And I also went on an accelerator course and I was given like up to 15,000 grand of funding, um, 15,000 pounds, sorry, of funding. And it was really amazing. And, you know, I thought that that was my future and I was devoted to my business and I was ready to start my business, but I also wanted to gain some experience in the work world. And um, I ended up working in a, a public relations firm. Um, it was really great exposure. And um, we did a lot of public affairs and stuff like that. But um, 
I realised that I didn't like the British culture in terms of the British corporate culture and how offices are. Um, And I found myself feeling really low and maybe even anxious and depressed because, um, one, I was the only black person in the office and two, I was the only black woman in the office. And people that are black will understand there's a difference between being black and being a black woman you know, um, it's what they call intersectionality. It means that you have two sort of, I don't want to say disadvantages, but um, you have two like um, minorities within you that you have to deal with. Not only are you in a, wo- a woman in a male dominated industry, um, in public affairs, we deal with politics a lot and, um, and public relations, we deal with advertising, marketing, you do see a lot of men in that industry. And then you hardly ever see people that are black. I had no one to look up to that was black. And so I found it very difficult. Um, And, you know, I did mention it a few times um, to HR, but I think maybe they didn't think it was a big, big, big of enough issue. And I noticed that I was going down the downward spiral. Um, And then something happened which I see as a blessing in disguise but it ended up that I didn't pass my probation and my job said you know we're gonna let you go and I would just remember crying but the crying was like tears of joy because when I went into that meeting I had in one hand a resignation letter but because of the nature of who I am Seb will know this I don't like letting people down And I don't like upsetting people. And so I was too scared to give my resignation letter in for about two months. You know, I just carried on in that job, even though I was so unhappy. Um, And so when they let me go, I just was I was happy on the inside because I saw it as a sign that, okay, well, right now I don't have a job. Um, And by the way, my parents moved to Nigeria um, whilst I was in boarding school with Seb about 10 years ago. Um, So at least I have that foundation there. I can go and save mum and dad for like six months, rethink about my life, recalibrate, and then come back to the UK when I feel better. Um, and but that was never the case because of COVID <laughs> and I've ended up staying here um, and it's been a blessing in disguise because I just decided, you know what, let me just apply for this job at the UN with someone that studied international relations and politics. I've been applying to UN jobs before university since like 2013 um, and, you know, UN jobs are so difficult to get. Um, So I was so surprised that I even got an interview um, and they called me whilst I was in the UK that I'd gotten an interview that when I come to Nigeria, I'm allowed to have a face to face interview. I was gobsmacked and just saw it as destiny. Um, And Seb knows I'm a very spiritual person and I do believe that everything happens for a reason. God makes everything happen for a reason. And um, the UN job that I was supposed to be doing from December to April, because I was supposed to come back to the UK in April, um, actually decided to extend um, my job to June. Um, and it was just such a blessing in disguise because I couldn't travel in April anyways. Um, and I was able to help Nigeria through the whole COVID crisis. So it, whenever stuff like this happens, I always tell people, like, go with the flow. Like, 
these things happen for a reason and I'm I'm just so happy that I moved to Nigeria so yeah that's it's great to hear but it kind of it leads us on to I guess one of the main topics of the podcast which is unfortunately the whole SARS uh debacle mm. that happened in Nigeria and, and before we get before I get on to any questions could you just do this is a hard question but could you summarize <laughs> for anyone who maybe doesn't know the whole SARS situation for someone who maybe hasn't read about it or heard about it yeah so SARS stands for the special um Oh, was it Stanford again? Special Anti-Robbery Squad. And they're an um, institution just under the police. So I like to say to people, um, just as you have the Metropolitan Police in the UK, and then under that you have those police that ride around on bikes in community areas, um, they're kind of like, they have a role, a specific role, and those community officers don't enforce law, but they just check if things are okay in communities. So this special anti-robbery um, squad in Nigeria, obviously by the name you can tell that their duty is to make sure that um, they keep tabs on robbers, armed robbery and stuff like that. So that is their role. And that was created in the 90s because Nigeria was going through an, a lot um, economy-wise. And so there were a, there were increased number of armed um, robberies. Um, and so you know, not just robberies, armed robberies, and people were being killed on the daily. So they decided to make that squad to keep that under control. Um, and someone <laughs> rightfully said that, you know, sometimes when you give the police too much power, they end up turning into the people that are supposed they're supposed to be protecting us from. So a lot of people experienced unjust convictions, um, you know, brutality, killings, rape, and people had just had enough. And I think something happened online where um, somebody spoke out about it. Um, and then all of a sudden, within less than a week, there were protests all over the country. Um, and, you know, and even in places like the UK, London, um, and it was great to see the support and everything. But um, I'm sure I'll get on to that a bit later. Um, I think the support was kind of delayed. Um, so anyways, the protests were occurring. Um, and if you look at the history of Nigeria, you'll see that um, from its independence, so this year Nigeria turned 60, from its independence in 1960, there has been um, intercha like inter interchanging governments. So at one point, the government was um, civilian rule. At another point, the government is military rule. So it, 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 there was a lot of political instability for about 50 years. I would say this is the this is the most peaceful time Nigeria's had in the past 10 years, 10, 20 years, um, from about 1990-something. And so Nigeria's always had a government that people have complained about, should I say. And um, the SARS protest turned into not just a protest against police brutality, but a protest against the things that the government does, like corruption and things like that. So many things came out in the open. So many secrets came out of the open during this time. And so I think um, right now our president is a former military ruler 
that ruled the country in like late 70s, 80s. Um, I can't remember exactly what year. His name is President Mohamedou Bari. And he is known for his strictness. Um, during his time, you know, people weren't even allowed to litter. <laughs> they would be beaten up by police if they littered. Like his, his, his mindset was like, you know, if we instill terror into the people, then they will obey us. And so, um, so yeah, on the 20th of October, 2020 was a day that I think a lot of people would never forget in Nigerian history. Um, so there were protesters, peaceful protesters, um, I just want to add that so people know that, you know, Nigerian youth, it was the Nigerian youth that have been protesting peacefully for about two weeks um, and protesting online prior to that. And um, they were sitting down in a very well-known and um, I would say the hub of protests in nationwide in a place called Leki in Lagos, Lagos Island. They were sitting down on the floor, waving Nigerian flags, singing the Nigerian anthem, you know, being very patriotic. And all of a sudden the lights switched off. Um, and people know this because not only were there reports, but, you know, some people were on Instagram live. So there's proof that this happened, um, despite what some politicians might be saying and or might have said and so um they were they were peacefully singing the nigerian national anthem and the lights were switched off street lights were switched off in the area and they couldn't see anything and all of a sudden gunshots happened um and people were so confused and unfortunately because people couldn't see um to run for like cover um they kind of some people, lots of people were wounded, some people were killed. And now it's known as, you know, the Lecky Massacre, because um, a lot of people feel like what the government did or whoever sent the soldiers, especially because they know that they were wearing army clothes, so they know it was army officers, and, um, you know, whoever sent the soldiers um, kind of tried to instill fear into the youth, you know, trying to make them feel like their voices will never be heard because some people think Nigeria is a dictatorship. Um, some people don't know. I mean, nobody really knows who sent what, whether it was the, um, you know, the executive government, meaning that the presidency and his office, or whether it was the Lagos governor. And some people have like beliefs that it was like godfathers in um, politics. These are people with lots of influence, lots of money, lots of power, because um, people like that do have soldiers on hand. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a terrible time for many people, especially me, because just four days before that, I was at that, I was on that same soil, like I was there handing out food to protesters, just encouraging people to keep lifting up their voices so our voices can be heard, so police brutality can stop and so corruption can stop. So yeah, that's it in a nutshell, <laughs> lots to it, but yeah. No, you've done like really well to kind of encapsulate that and, and get, like you said, give it to us in a nutshell. I, I saw the image, I saw a few images, unfortunately, um, on Twitter of, of some of the shootings and some of the um, 
some of the corpses is now that I'm trying to find a nicer word, but there really isn't a nicer yeah. word. It's what it is. And yeah, it was distressing. But I think for me, and the reason why I wanted to have this podcast with you um, is because I have a slight, I don't know how to put this. My worry is that Africa's problems are Africa's problems, not humanity's problems. Um, as the title of this podcast is, Africa's problems are the humanity's problems. Um, I think that they are, obviously. but And I say obviously, but in reality, maybe it isn't so obvious because that's what made, what I found most distressing was actually there wasn't that much support worldwide, at least from the from the feeds that I was looking at. Um, and when we compare it to BLM, for example, which obviously was, it was a worldwide thing, but it kind of was born in America that garnered loads of support from celebrities, from people all around the world, white, black, gay, straight, didn't matter. You supported that, that movement. And I wondered how much of that was performative. I wondered whether people were really serious about that allyship, about being in support of such a movement. Um, and I think, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I I think kind of what happened in Nigeria, and look, there's been problems in, in many other countries in Africa recently that haven't got the, the headlines that they deserve and, and the time on the news that they deserve. And I think it is kind of indicative of that performative nature that we saw in the BLM movement. And I wonder for you as a British Nigerian, so obviously you can kind of see both sides of the coin here. How does that tally with yourself? I know you've spoken to me about the um, diaspora um, Nigerians and maybe how, and you said how maybe the support and the demonstrations came up slightly later than maybe you would have hoped. But even, <clears throat> I'm not just talking about diaspora Nigerians, but just talking generally, how does that tally with you that you feel like kind of Africa is always forgotten or because the, I, the way I saw it or the way that I kind of interpreted what was happening was that when something bad happens in Africa, it's kind of like, oh, typical Africa. Do you know what I mean? It's never really moved on. Like this, this shit is this shit is just a daily thing for Africa. Whereas, for example, when we saw the shootings in Paris, all of a sudden that really shocked everybody, and rightly so. But you would see everybody put the France um, filter on their profile pictures, this, that, and the other, pray for pr France, and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, maybe that's because we see ourselves close, closer to the French in the terms of like society and culturally. And so it almost impacts on us more. Um, I was talking to Jim, and Jim said he thinks there's definitely a part of racism is involved, but maybe just a part as well that people can't actually there's only so much people can care about right and that maybe if you're not nigerian or you don't have nigerian friends or whatever the case may be maybe that it just doesn't enter your mind like it doesn't enter your kind of your your environment and so therefore you don't you don't really give it that much credence um my argument to that would be well i agree, I agree with jim to be honest i do agree with him but i think then those same people shouldn't have been given it big energy when BLM, when the throughout the BLM movement, because if you're not serious about it, I feel like if you tweeted BLM and all the rest of it and all the support, then you have to be there in support of all what Black Lives Matter. Is it only Black Lives American or is it Black Lives African Black Lives as well? Do they matter as well? Do they matter? Do they matter equally as much to us? And I, I, I really, I hate to say this, but I'm not sure that is the case. What, what do you think? 
Wow, I think you've hit the nail on the head and it's so nice to like kind of it's it's so refreshing to kind of hear from someone who isn't in my position physically um you know you're not black <laughs> and and also um physically like you're not in Africa um because when the whole Black Lives Matter movement, obviously Black Lives Matter is not a new movement. It's just something that was amplified through the whole George Floyd killings. Um, so, you know, Black Lives Matter has been around for a very long time. And, um, and, and so when it was amplified, obviously I was happy because change was able to occur. And during that time, so many things happened. You heard of people in their offices and employers talking to them about certain things and um, actually considering them and, and, and becoming more aware of the black experience because being black is an experience. It's always been an experience since the time of colonization. And I will always say that and believe that. Um, and I love how you questioned um, with this whole Black Lives Matter thing, is it a sense of Black Lives Matter only because um, only in the UK or only in America and not in Africa? And is there a sense that we only have so many things that we can care about? Um, I, un I understand how people might feel that way because our minds are full of so much that um, if we take on so much, it can almost overwhelm you almost make you feel um, down and depressed yourself. You know, you care about animal rights, you care about the environment, you care about um, um, FGM, FGM, you care about things like um, human trafficking, you care about um, gender equality, like it can be a lot. And I understand because naturally I'm that person because um, of my interests. But I think you can never care too much um, it's it's that people have a a wrong sense of understanding what it means to care in the sense that you can care about something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be doing the things that everyone does in a sense that when Black Lives Matter was happening, people were posting, you know. Um, but some people didn't post. Some people actually dealt with it in the office or dealt with it in the space that they knew how to deal with it within their close friends. That's caring, you know? So it can almost feel overwhelming when you only do things to show that you care, but it's not. it doesn't come natural to you. And that's why I think some people think like, oh, something has happened now, Um I have to show that I care by posting it online. You know, people are suffering in Congo, people are suffering in South Africa, people are suffering, you know, and, and, and there's almost that pressure to retweet or that's almost that pressure to, to, to post something on your page. Um, but I don't think that posting necessarily fixes the matter. It can work towards fixing it in the sense that it raises awareness, but it doesn't fix it in the sense that what is the matter? Let's hit the nail on the head and actually get something done. And so when it came to the whole NSARS thing, the reason I feel that people's responses were delayed was because I was so surprised 
and not to condemn anyone that's Nigerian that's listened to this, that's in the diaspora. And when me and Seb say the diaspora, we mean that people that are originally from Nigeria and maybe born in another country, like someone like me. I'm from, I'm a Nigerian diasporian because my dad was born in Nigeria. My mom was born in the UK, but she's Nigerian. My dad's Nigerian too, you know? I was a bit disappointed in the diaspora in the sense that I felt like responses were very delayed in the sense that many people were seeing these things online and they were going on with life as normal. But if you compare it to what happened with Black Lives Matter, people spoke up straight away. And um, it made me question, but some of you come to Nigeria for Christmas. You come because you love to enjoy yourself. You, you just posted last week or two weeks ago that it was Independence Day, um, Nigerian Independence Day is on the 1st of October, yet you find it difficult to try and speak up about what's going on in Nigeria or even ask questions, you know. I posted something on my page that, um, and on my Twitter, my Instagram page and on my Twitter to help people understand how they could help in the sense that you don't just need to post. Why don't you reach out to people you know that live in Nigeria, ask them if they're mentally and physically okay, if they need any help, if they need to email their bosses or something because they feel over too overwhelmed to come into work, if there's a way you can donate to help any of the causes or anybody that has may have not been able to go into work because a lot of roads were closed and therefore don't have money. There's so many different ways to help. And I think... I think you're right in the sense that Africa kind of gets forgotten. Um, Africa has a narrative that is not true to Africa. Um, and I know that for sure, because I know that when people come to Africa, when people come to countries, and I don't know why people think Africa is a country, by the way, it's a continent. We're about 50 something countries. <laughs> um, when people come to Africa, the continent, they're surprised at the um, wealth. They're surprised at the experience. They're surprised at the love and the hospitality because that's what Africans are about. Um, but I really want to challenge anyone listening to this that if Africa wasn't a wealthy continent, why would have people come and colonize Africans in the first place? They obviously saw value here. You know, and it's nothing for people that are in former colonial master countries like, you know, the UK and France to feel guilty about because obviously you you were never there. <laughs> but it's for people to understand that a lot of African identity and a lot of what people think about Africa is embedded in people's former colonial mindset in the sense that, oh, we need to go to Africa because they have resources. They need our help. You know, they're seeing Africa as a place to give aid to. Africa as a place to to kind of help because we're behind or we're developing. Um, and so I think that when bad things happen to Africa, like you said, Seb, um, or happen within African countries, like African nations, people are like, well, here we go, it's Africa again. Is it not, is it not Congo that's dealing with... Um, political instability and issues? Is it not um, South Africa that is dealing with a lot of um, increased cases of rape and sexual assault and gender-based violence? Um, and I don't think people should have that mindset because 
if something like that were to happen somewhere like the UK or France or America, we would not think, oh, it's just the UK. Um, so we need to see nations equally. We need to see nations with equal eyes and see nations on an equal playing field. Um, and just the same way you would care about something happening in France, um, just as you mentioned, Seb, we should care about things happening in every nation, whether we know someone there or not. But caring doesn't necessarily mean that you have to post something. So that's my take on that. Yeah, it's uh, that the ending on that caring is the, not necessarily posting. I think for our generation, that's almost an oxymoron, you know, whereby people feel as if they have to tweet. And I know that during like the Black Lives Matter, for example, I know that people felt pressure to, and because if they, if they didn't tweet, they would get called out in their groups. And, oh, are you racist? Why aren't you posting this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. But like you said, a post can do so much. It might raise awareness, but if you're not willing to act upon that post, if it's all, if it only ever is a retweet, then it loses any potency or any potential potency that it may have. And like, that was the big thing um, that I was worried about, to be honest, because I've been, and I don't want to come across as I'm some sort of like Messiah or some sort of white savior or anything like that. But I'm very lucky that I went to boarding school and I grew up with you guys. Um, what there's about 20, 20 like British Nigerians all there, some directly from Nigeria and some like like yourself or Michael who had grown up in London, but obviously had very strong roots back in Nigeria. And that allowed me to grow up with an appreciation for a country and a continent and a culture that I would have never have had exposure to um, had that, had I not gone to that school, basically, and I'm not gone to boarding school. And so I have an affinity with that, with that culture, right? Because I've seen you guys and I've lived with you guys and I've visited your homes and I've eaten jollof rice and I've had pounded yam and all of that stuff. And it's beautiful. And so then I have this affinity with it and I understand how maybe Maybe someone who doesn't know a Michael or a Christina, they might not have that. But then my, my kind of challenge to those people would be, you know, like you said, let's not make it performative. If you really care about something, that's great. But like, like you said, ask, reach out. I'm sure you know someone who knows someone who's Nigerian or or whatever the case may be. Um, the, a simple retweet, a simple hashtag, it really doesn't do anything. And I think... I think we do it for our own image. I think we do it because we want to look good. We want to look righteous. We want to look virtuous. And ultimately it's a downward spiral because you're going to get caught out, right? <laughs> because if you keep on doing these retweets, people are going to ask you questions. And then when you start talking and you don't know, then it's going to be like, oh, okay, I see what this is. This is just a, this is just a charade. This is just a fugazi that you're putting on, but it's not real. And I think that's a real big problem. And I think people don't, we, we're too self-involved, right? And we think about our own problems, like you said, but we can't, you, I, I agree with you. You can't care too much. And so if you care enough, what is it to have a conversation? What Just to sit down, like me and you are doing now, just to sit down for an hour call someone, whatever it may be. That's not, and to me, that does miles more good, let's be fair, than a retweet because most of these people who retweet, and they're not influencers, they have 200 followers, okay? So like this whole raising awareness stuff, it is, there's a cap on it, do you know what I mean? And, but if you reach out to someone 
and you really converse with them and you show that you care that is that's something that will that's long lasting i mean i reached out to michael and like he's he's diaspora he lives in london um but i knew that it'd be taxing for him because like he has family in nigeria and because he's a proud nigerian and like to see something like that going on in your own country i can only imagine you know if something like that was to happen in italy for example even though i'm not in italy it would still hurt the soul you know and so i reached out to him and just said like oh bro how you doing like i hope you and your mama like auntie gloria are all fine this that and the other and he took a couple of days to reply and that was absolutely fine but when he replied he said like i really appreciate you reaching out to me and i think that's caring right or that's at least trying to care and being sincere with it um and yeah it's a, it's a real problem do you think i wonder do you think that because of how we see how and when i say we i mean the british public right how how we see africa as these poor underdeveloped you know these poor little things we always have pity on africans be it nigerian be it wherever do you think that that then kind of somehow subconsciously almost seeps through into the british nigerians into the british uh south africans and so on and so forth to a point whereby they don't want to openly talk about the african heritage because it's almost like it's almost sullied it's almost dirty do you know what i mean whereas for example if i go into a restaurant if i go into a public place and talk about italy anyone and everyone in that place wants to talk to me about italy and tell me about their italian uh, experiences and oh they had this pizza here and they had this pasta here and they went to rome once and blah 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 but you don't see that same energy with with africa right and african heritage do you think that that was maybe the reason where, why there was a delayed reaction in terms of the protest that we did see in london i think um what's fantastic is recently the black lives matter has been making people more proud of their African heritage. So you see girls um, like me that are okay with going into work with braids. Like I remember when I was in my old job and I got braids done. And this was like maybe about four or five months in to work in my job just before I left. And I was so scared to go to work on Monday because I didn't know how people would react. I've heard of horrible cases where people have worked for certain companies and they've been sent home because their hair is seen as unprofessional, you know, and really that's our culture. And I think people are embracing African culture more, but you're so right, only because it's something I've studied. So I don't know if I, I spoke to you about this, Seb, but for my undergraduate um, dissertation, I wrote a dissertation about post-colonialism, which is a uh, ideology. You know, you have um, people that have certain mindsets in the sense that they may be a sort of conservative, so conservatism, or they're liberalists, so liberalism. You have post-colonialism, which those people have the mindset that colonization affected um, the black experience, whether you whether you live in America, the Caribbean or Africa or all around the world, um, if you do have black skin, you tend to be um, of black heritage or ancestry in the sense that, you know, most black people that live in the Caribbean have the ancestry of African um, blood because of the slave trade and the same with America. So those post-colonialism, post-colonialists have the mindset that, you um, you know, colonization affected um, Af 
um, black people. And I found it interesting, so I decided to write a dissertation on it. But what I found when writing the dissertation was that all the people, a lot of the people that wrote about it that we have access to in the UK, um, in libraries, they're all white. And if I wanted to find people that had written about it that were Africans themselves, that had been a part of the slave trade or um, had experienced you know, how colonization affected their lives, I couldn't find it in the library, people that are of African origin. And so I do believe that the African narrative has been downplayed and has been made people to feel pity on Africa, like you said, to make people feel like, oh, these poor Africans, you know. And you th- you see things on TV like Water Aid, Oxfam, and and if you've never interacted with someone from Nigeria or from Africa, and they say, you know, if you donate two pounds a month, you can give a well to a Af- to a Nigerian village. You think Nigeria's like that? Until, you know, you have Nigerian friends and you'll see that many people do not have that experience, although many do, um, because there's high poverty rates in Nigeria. Apparently, Nigeria is the capital of poverty in Africa, but it's also what they call the giant of Africa with the biggest economy um, and in population. You know, people might have that mindset of black people or Nigerians. And you're right in the sense that it could have crept in to even people within the diaspora. I remember when I was growing up, I moved from North London, Camden, where um, if you look at my nursery pictures and my brother's nurse, my older brother's nursery pictures, we literally go from Um, because I moved when I was in reception, he was in year two. So our pictures, our class photos in Camden were literally like, say there's 30 people in the class, Um, 10 are black, 10 are um, Asian, Indians, Chinese, um, or maybe 15 are like, you know, Asian. And then then you've got five that are white or 10 that are white. You know, it was very diverse. And then we moved to Kent. Um, a place called Dartford, and we were the only black family in this little village within Dartford. Um, and, you know, it was very hard for, I remember my older brother, because he, he's he got that consciousness, he was about seven, but I was only five. So then, you know, racism doesn't really creep in at such a young age. Um, but I remember... Um, end of primary school my you know there was maybe one or two other black people in my school it was cooler then to be like from the Caribbean you know the Caribbean is seen as exotic you have your jerk chicken you have your rice and peas like everyone you know wants to go to Jamaica on a holiday or Barbados on a holiday and so if someone assumes you're Jamaican you just kind of it sounds bad but you kind of keep quiet about not being from the Caribbean and if you're seen as African some people used to unfortunately make fun of you um I was lucky to be surrounded by other Nigerian people especially in my secondary school before I came to boarding school and so it made me proud of my heritage and my parents have always instilled that within me and my brothers that we should be proud that we're from Nigeria um in a sense that you know, I think a lot of people do, a lot of people's parents when they moved, because um, their parents are first generation immigrants, when they moved from Nigeria to the UK, um, they were just taught in the UK way. But I remember my parents basically saying that 
when you're outside, when you step out of the front door, you're in the UK. But as soon as you step into the front door, you're in Nigeria. And, you know, they taught us Nigerian customs and, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Nigerian broom that we used to sweep. It's like this wooden thing, you know, even down to like our household things were Nigerian. You know, we ate Nigerian food and we went to Nigeria in the summer. And it's, it sounds very similar to your Italian experience. I remember you telling me about how you'd go and stay with like your grandma in Italy. And that's how you learned Italian. But if you had never gone which some Nigerians weren't as fortunate as my family to not go to Nigeria. Um, you're kind of brought up in this British way. And mm, I find that people that haven't necessarily been to Nigeria or connected with their Nigerian roots do have that mindset that the British do, which is kind of pity on Africa, unfortunately. So, yeah. It's funny because when I... Uh... Well, I shouldn't say funny. It's interesting because when I grew up, obviously with you guys, well, I was 11, I was year seven, um, Michael and yourself were a year above me. And then your, like your brother Akin came in, I think he came in in sixth form level. Uh, and then we'd have people join younger as well. And what was funny, or I should, I should stop saying funny, what was interesting to me that I look back on it now in hindsight was the... Um, the difference in the way you guys had to interact in a school environment. And I remember, for example, so you would have your click, especially in boarding school. And I was lucky. I, I've written a piece of my, the Oyun Bourne experience, but like I was, I kind of like brought in um, to, to the group. Thank God. Um, but it so was this like hub of just Nigerian culture in Waynefleet, Lincolnshire, which was pretty, uh, pretty uh, crazy to see. But what I remember is that like at school and stuff, um, both be it from pressure from your parents uh, and also kind of systemic pressures, you had, you had to achieve excellence. I always remember that, that none of you guys, whether you did or not, that's another question, but none of you guys were allowed to even like entertain the notion of failure, um, which I always thought was interesting because in, as a white guy or white girl, you have a lot more freedom in that sense and you can explore more things. And yeah, we, our, our friend, Michael, um, I always remember him telling me that like Seb, the thing is in Nigeria, like there's four, there's four, um, there's four, jobs there's being a lawyer there's being an engineer there's being a doctor and there's being unemployed and anything so basically what he was saying is like these are my three options and like anything outside of those options i'll be seen as a failure in terms of like by my family now look at him doing graphic design and i know he had to fight with his mom to some extent for to get her to accept that he wanted to go down this route and i wonder like how does how do you how do you balance those pressures, both coming from family and like the and the kind of the system? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I, and also, sorry, like a double part question to that: do those do those pressures um, decrease somewhat when you actually go back to Nigeria? Because now you're not competing with white people anymore. So now you're in Nigeria and you're all just Nigerian. Do you have more freedoms now to express yourself how you want to? Could Michael have grown up and told his mom from the get-go that he wanted to be a graphic designer instead of studying science at university, for example, if he had gone back to Nigeria? 
Um, actually, so starting with your second question, um, it is a pressure within Nigeria as well. So, you know, I think things are slowly changing because people are realizing there's industries that you can really thrive in and become an entrepreneur. Like, for example, the fintech industry in Nigeria is really growing and people are saying, you know, in the next 10 years, it could be the next Silicon Valley um, because people are getting into fintech. People are getting into like making apps and stuff like that. And then also the entertainment industry. I guarantee you, if you don't know Nigerian, you know a Nigerian song. You know Wizkid, you know David O, you know all the Nigerian songs, you know Debanj at least, like, you know, and so the entertainment industry is booming. You see that on Netflix, just as much as Bollywood films are like Nollywood films, Nigerian films, you know? Um, and so the entertainment industry is really booming and um, people are starting to have their eyes open to the fact that being a lawyer, being a doctor, being an engineer are not the only three routes of employment. And I think in my parents' time, their parents used to tell them that. So you see a lot of my, you see a lot of people around my grandparents' age that are in the medical field field or in the the law field or, or, or an engineer you know and they they did succumb and and then our parents generation some of them succumbed to the pressure I remember um my my dad you know he's very playful and he was known as someone that is really smart but he used to play around a lot and he was kind of what what you would call like a b-knock on campus um or a, cl- a class clown um but he like ended Akin. up studying engineering but really yeah like like Akin, basically like my brother they're quite similar <laughs> but um he ended up studying engineering and um and to be honest my dad is he yeah he he he's practiced a bit of engineering but he's a businessman like if he just studied business from the get-go um i mean it wouldn't have changed much because it comes naturally to him he's a businessman and it's great he has the um engineering background because of what he does in business but um He's a businessman, and I feel like if there wasn't that pressure, maybe he would have taken a different route. And my mum, I remember her saying that she was so upset because she didn't get into uni for law. So she had to apply to the next thing, next next similar thing, which was um, English. Um, and so, but, but right now she's doing so well and her English degree has opened doors for her. So... I think, although my parents wanted all of us to study law, um, luckily my youngest brother studies law. So after trying with my oldest brother, he not wanting to study law, me saying that I want to study international relations and politics and my dad going, oh, you know, that's similar to international law. (laughs) Um, Eventually my younger brother now studies law. So my dad's like at peace. But um, my mom has always been the type of parent that has said, you know, whatever you want to do do it but do it well and that goes on to your first questions nigerians do have pressure to be exceptional in everything they do possibly because of the population we have such a large population that if you're not exceptional you cannot stand out i think a similar cases in china you know if you bring a chinese person to the uk a five-year-old will be doing you know 15 year old maths that's why when they come to the uk they're exceptional 
um, and they they do so well in those sorts of subjects because there's that pressure to be exceptional from a young age, and that's the case. But actually, stemming from that question, I think a lot of pressure came from the fact that one, we're Nigerians, and we're some of us. Some of our parents had sent us to the UK. So obviously with me and my brother, we were already in the UK in boarding school. But some parents had actually sent their children to the UK and were paying boarding house fees in Naira. And if you know the Naira to the pound, it's the pound is very strong. So there was that pressure to not waste your parents' money. If you wasted your parents' money, you are in trouble. And being in trouble Nigerian way is different to being in trouble UK way. <laughs> you know, um, let me not say this because I obviously don't want people to think like social services to come and get people, but Nigerians are, do not shy away from beating their children. You know, they do believe in it. And and disciplining their children. I shouldn't really say beating, um, disciplining their children. Um, I was blessed enough to have a dad that doesn't beat. He doesn't believe in it, but he believes in discipline. And that's even more scarier sometimes. Um, sometimes you just want to take the beat and go, but my dad would discipline you. <laughs> and so there was that pressure to do well. But then also going back to the whole black experience in the UK, if you're black, there is a pressure to be exceptional because you want to be noticed. You want to be chosen um, and and not be overlooked. One, because of your ethnic minority. And I'm not just talking about black people. I'm talking about Asians. I'm talking about any ethnic minority. Um, and you... you you want to stand out. And I think there's that extra pressure to prove a point, especially if you're someone like a black man. You know, um, I remember my younger brother coming home one day when I was in the UK. And I think he was like in his first year of uni. And, you know, um, Afro hair, when you cut it really short, because uh, I remember having, I had a low cut once, I cut all my hair off. It gets really cold. Like obviously if you have short hair, your hair gets cold. But with African hair, with Afro hair, it gets really cold and he put his hood up in the night and he was walking home and all of a sudden he said that one woman just kind of jumped and held her bag and kind of like ran away from her. And that's the perception of black men a lot from a lot of people. Like if you were in a lift with a black man by yourself at night with a hood on, ask yourself, would you be scared? You know, and so that makes you think about how much black people, especially black men, need to prove to society that, yeah, they've gone to uni because if that woman had had a one minute conversation, she would have learned that my brother is the gentlest, kindest, someone that won't even kill a spider, someone that's studying law, who's very smart, educated and intelligent. And she wouldn't have had that mindset. So to him, there's that extra pressure to prove something to not just society, not just your parents, but to society that as a black individual, I'm I'm educated. I want good for myself. I'm not going to harm you. Um, and I know not everybody has that mindset, but a lot of the population that have never interacted with black people do. And so that's something that needs to be. That's something that constantly needs work. But that kind of is one of the places the pressure comes from, um, trying to prove to society. And I think also, um, I, I, I never experienced this growing up in London. Like I said, London is quite multicultural. 
and everything. But when I moved to um, our boarding school in Skegness, I cannot forget what happened on like the first week. I remember my form tutor, um, she said something along the lines of, Christina, over the past two weeks, I've, I've noticed how amazing your English is. I was like, oh, thank you. I said, like, what do you mean? And she was like, it's not your first language, is it? And I was like, yes, it is. I don't even speak Yoruba, my native Nigerian language. I, I was born and raised in the UK, in London. Like, this is my accent. This is my language. If anything, Nigerians see me as foreign when I come here, you know? So I just got taken back by, wow, okay. So she even feels like English is not my first language. And she sees, she thinks I'm making an effort to try and prove that I can catch up with everyone. And that's the sort of pressure that black people get every day. Not in the sense that people don't think that they can speak their language, but people think that they naturally fall short because they're not like hereditarily English or white. You know, they naturally fall short in the space of certain areas. So I think there is that pressure and that's why you do see a lot of exceptional um, people that are, that are black or of ethnic minority trying to prove a point because they really need to, you know, um, kind of prove a point and also um, make their parents proud because I know that my friend is Pakistani and she, she always talks about um, how her parents, you know, have always been like, we didn't move to this country for you to be, you know, so you always have that in the back of your mind as well, that your parents were immigrants, went through a lot of stress um, to bring you here because she moved here when she was 11 or they went through a lot of stress to give birth to you in this country so you can't let them down. So the pressure comes from there too. I think it's uh, <clears throat> what you're saying about like um, falling like black or the expectation for black people to fall short. I find that, there's like a, a clear distinction there where it comes, they find them to fall short. Like when we're talking about cerebral matters, like when we're talking about intelligence, where when we're talking about like physical matters, we then expect black people to dominate. Right. But so for example, like you see on, on like footballers, I always think football is a great example because no one will argue that black people can't play football or black people aren't great footballers because there's just so many, you can't, you physically cannot argue that anymore. But the reason we associate black people, black men with being great footballers is because of their pace, because of their strength, because of this. We don't associate it with them being like really technical minded and very well thought out and very deliberate. And so then that what happens is then you kind of see that when these players try to like then transform into management, where management is seen as a much more cerebral job. Obviously, you don't need physical skills to be a manager. You need to be clever. Then these amazing black players, I'm talking top of like the 1% of the 1%, they don't make it. But these white players do because it's like, oh, well, if you're white and you were good, it's probably because you probably weren't quick. So you had to be really clever to make it. But if you're black, you're just probably like really quick and like strong. And so that's what helped you get there. Almost like a cheat code, right? And I've, I've always, I've noticed that quite a few times. And I, yeah, it's, it's a real pity because... 
it's ridiculous to expect i think people to be clever or stupid because of a certain country or continent that they come from it's just that's moronic it's all about the education system that you've grown up in and nothing more than that but not the level of melanin that you have in your skin i mean there's going to be really intelligent black people and really intelligent white people and really stupid black people and really stupid white people because that's just a human thing it's not a race thing but i wonder you were talking about like african culture one of the th- one of the great things that I think, well, one of the great things that black people have, ma- they export their culture so well. And I think like white people love black culture. The question is, do they love black people? That's a different question. And maybe we could have a whole podcast dedicated to that. But I, I was wondering, do you, do you think, for example, you were talking about um, WizKid and so on, but you know, we don't even have to go that far. If we just look at the grime artists that everyone is, gassing up right now they're all they'll all come from caribbean or african descent and they're all very they know that the 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 the, um actors john boyega for example uh anthony joshua the boxer all of these people very proud of their nigerian heritage could they potentially had i don't want to put the blame on their feet but is there is there a possibility that then maybe they could export their african culture better and kind of play up it more to bring it to like literally force it into the limelight and be like because i don't know if it like maybe people don't know that anthony joshua is nigerian maybe people don't know john boyega is nigerian do you know what i mean and maybe like if they see these really successful people that they look up to as like oh shit that's what a nigerian is I didn't know like a Nigerian was the heavyweight champion of the world. Mad. Then if they see that, then the pity can like, will start to like, will start to go away a bit because you're like, well, I'm not going to be pitying someone who could literally beat up anyone in the world. Do you know what I mean? Or John Boyega, like one of the best, maybe the new Denzel Washington of our era. Do you know what I mean? You're like, oh, mad, he's Nigerian. Is there a way that maybe we could celebrate or they could celebrate their own heritage more and therefore we who maybe aren't you know people who maybe aren't as 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 familiar as conscious with that 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 culture actually start to appreciate you know so if they go on to the graham norton show or wherever these mainstream platforms to talk up about it and not be i mean and boom yeah i'm nigerian and and the next fight i'm gonna have is gonna be in lagos and boom i mean and and then you're gonna start getting people in lagos where's that and they're gonna start like searching it up and stuff i think like do, do you think there's any credence to that yeah, I agree. Like when you were talking, I was just remembering how um, when, just before I came to Skeg, I'd gone on a trip to Italy. And I think I told you about this, that I went to Naples, Sicily, Rome. And I had this perception of Italians being so hospitable, so nice, so kind. And meeting you and your dad amplified that for me. And so I had the mindset that this is what Italians are like. So when I went to um, France for my year abroad in 2015 and 2016, and I had an Italian lecturer and he taught me about the history of Italy, um, he was like that too. And I'd already had a preconceived notion that he was going to be like that. And it's the same with what you're saying in the sense that if people know that this person is from this country, then they're more likely to build a perception of what the people in that country are like. And I think if you are someone that's famous, if you are an influencer, naturally you're an ambassador to what, what whoever you are. For example, if you're an influencer and you're part of the LGBT Q community, LGBTQ+, I think they call it now, community, um, you're seen as 
you know, an ambassador for that community and people can look to you for advice or um, understanding of what that community is. Or like me, like I said, I'm not just black, I'm a black woman, but I'm from Nigeria. I'm also a Christian, you know? So there's so many different things about you that people can look to. Um, I remember even I learned a bit more about you talking about your dad being a Catholic and your mum, your mum's a Catholic as well, I think, right? And you talking about Catholicism and learning about that. And, you know, it, it was, I understood that through, through actually, you know, just understanding a person first. And you're so right, because one thing I'd say, so using the examples you said, um, I know that a lot of people know that John Boyoga is Nigerian because he's very vocal about his Nigerian heritage. Um, at one point, you know, just after he appeared in Star Wars, he came to Nigeria for Christmas in December and met up with other Nollywood actors. And I just thought that that was so amazing. You know, he's someone of heavy influence and he wants to show the world where he's from. Um, and then during the Black Lives Matter movement, he was a very vocal lead in London, you know, um, and he did a lot for that movement to educate people. So I really commend him for that. And I think the way he's going about it is so incredible and so amazing. Um, but yeah, I think you're right about Anthony Joshua. Like maybe some people, maybe because of his name is English, people actually don't know that he's Nigerian unless you a really avid boxer, you know, an avid watcher of boxing. Um, we know he's Nigerian because we're proud that a Nigerian is a heavyweight champion. Do you get what I mean? I, I, is he a heavyweight champion? But yeah, um, we're proud that Nigerian is a heavyweight champion. Nigerians know he's Nigerian, but do the world, does the world know? And I think he can do more because I remember during the whole NSARS movement, you know, people were nitpicking online about, people that had spoken up and people that hadn't spoken up. And they were really, really um, disappointed at Anthony Joshua because, you know, he would posted about Nigerian Independence Day. I think he'd shared some Nigerian food or something that he likes to eat. I think it was handed jam. And, um, but he'd never posted anything about the NSARS movement. And so people were upset. And also, I don't know if you know about um, the whole Beyonce incident. So obviously, People are not just upset with people that are from Nigeria being ambassadors of Nigeria, but they believe that if you've done something for Nigeria, if you're some way affiliated with Nigeria, you should also be a voice too. And so a lot of people were disappointed in Beyonce, which I think people shouldn't have focused too much on, you know, what were celebrities doing. But um some people were upset with Beyonce because obviously of her whole her whole album that she recorded. Um, and, you know, having Nigerian artists on the album, such as Wizkid. And uh, who else did she have on the album? That Yeah, she had quite a few Nigerians on the album. And so people felt like she could have done more to support the cause. So it questions, it's more of a question of if you are in a, pers a person of influence, do you recognise the fact that you are an ambassador of that country by default? And do you take up that position rightfully? And if you do, why not? Because your people also have a voice. You know, even if you're from a country like, I don't know, Bermuda, I said that randomly, who don't have, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say they don't have any issues, but the world doesn't hear about their issues. 
are you proudly a, a Bermudian? I think they're called. I don't know how to say their their nationality, but do you know what I mean? Are you a proud a proud Jamaican? Are you a proud Mexican? Are you a proud um, Italian? You know, are you proud? Even if you're from like, you know, I I, I met someone on my year abroad, and he was from Afghanistan. And he was so proud of being from Afghanistan and he wanted to tell everyone about the wrong world perception of Afghanistan and Iraq. And I just thought that was so inspiring, him noticing that even though he lived in Zurich in Switzerland most of his life, he knows that he needs to educate people about his nationality. So it all goes into patriotism and nationalism and stuff like that. But yeah, I think I think you're right that celebrities and influencers can do more to um, kind of use their influence in a, in a good way. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one because I asked the question, I don't know how much I believe in the question itself, because for example, when the whole BLM movement came up, um, you know how you were saying people may be disappointed in, in Andrew Joshua for the and SARS. There's a lot of people who were um, disappointed in J. Cole because J. Cole didn't really speak up about it. And then he sent out a tweet and he just basically said, like, guys, I'm not like I understand that I'm a black kind of influential guy here, but I'm not the one you should be listening to on this topic. Like, and then he like tweeted like a few accounts and a few people who like, if you're interested, if you're interested, go listen to these people because they can talk about it better. And it's like, I do think we get in this, in, in the world that we live in today, this whole thing of influence. I mean, I almost hate that word now, but this whole thing of influence, influence, influence. like, ultimately it's, it's a weird one. Can Anthony Joshua do more? Maybe, who knows? The question, my question is, does he have to do more? Like he's a boxer. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we shouldn't be looking to a boxer to teach us about problems that are going on in Nigeria. If he takes it on himself and on his own shoulders, that's a great thing. Do you know what I mean? Like you're saying with John Boyega, that's a brilliant thing. But like, I don't think that we should just, it's a hard one because I think now we look at someone's followers and we go, oh my God, you have 2 million followers. Bruv, you should be doing everything. You should be doing a madness right now because it's not right that you, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, what, so you're happy to take these 2 million followers money? Yeah, but now that, like, your country needs you, you're not going to be talking. It's like, but he's a singer, or he's a boxer, or he's a rapper, or he's a runner. Like, they are amazing in what they do, but I don't want to be listening to, like, and I love Anthony Joshua, but, like, I don't necessarily want to be listening to Anthony Joshua about, like, politics. Do you get me? Like, I want to be listening to, like, whoever our closest Nelson Mandela is these days. I want to be listening to that guy. And I'll listen to Anthony Joshua when, it, when it's about boxing, you get me? And I think that's a difficult one because I think we get sometimes twisted in it and we kind of expect our heroes to then talk about everything and everything. And I also feel they have a responsibility if they're going to talk like John Boyega or whoever it may be, if they're going to talk because they have such a platform, they have to be knowledgeable about it. Because if they say something wrong, or something that actually isn't correct or, or whatever the case may be, you're now going to get a load of people who now have that same opinion because I think we've lost autonomy of thought and we just allow people to think for ourselves, right? And we just go, oh, well, well, Anthony Joshua said this thing, so it must be true because Anthony Joshua said and he has 15 million followers. And it's like, well, maybe, but maybe we should also do our own little research, you know? And it's, it's a difficult one, but I asked the question just because I think it's, I, there's so, like, I obviously know living with you guys, how many Nigerians there are. You talk about the massive population, but there's a huge population of Nigerians in England as well. And 
a lot of them are really, really successful people. Maybe sometimes we don't even realize and we, you know, are oh, they're British and it's great. Like I, yes, Anthony Joshua is British to me, but he also has a, 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 um, that Nigerian heritage that I'm happy. Like I'm proud that he has that. Do you know what I mean? Cause it's like, it speaks well about Nigeria. Ultimately, like you said, he's the heavyweight champion of the world. I mean, that is something to be proud of. That's why he's loved in England. Let's be fair. But, I wondered, you've given me, you gave me, I want to kind of like finish up here because I know, and I'm sure we'll have you on again. And there's so many like just different tangents that we can go on and, you know, get lost down rabbit holes. But for people who are listening to this and then they now go, you know what, this is maybe, I don't pay enough attention to Africa or I haven't paid enough attention to the history of Africa. And and I want to know a bit more. Is Are there any resources? I know you kind of recommended a Netflix series to me. Are there any resources like that? Maybe some books, maybe, I don't know, some other podcasts or, or, or people that they should just follow on Twitter who kind of regularly talk about these topics that someone can like just follow these people or listen to this or watch this and then they'll start to find out more um, autonomously. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'd love to be back on the show. <laughs> um, honestly, I've really enjoyed this and thank you so much for the opportunity. And I really love how you did say that people have their specific fields. Like you're right. Anthony Joshua is a boxer and there shouldn't be pressure on him to um, share his political views. Um, really and truly people watch him for boxing. Um, and you're so right. And you know what? Um, you're right about also the autonomous, the, the the fact that people don't are not autonomous in their thinking, and so they do look to um, people they look up to and influencers to make decisions for themselves. Like, oh, Anthony Joshua was talking about NSARS, right? Okay, I believe in NSARS. Do you know what I mean? And um, by the way, NSARS was the hashtag um, for anybody listening. But um, you're so right about that, and 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 it's really made me think. Um, about who I look to really for influence. So thank you so much. Um, but yeah, there's there's so many things to be done. And I think there's pressure in telling people, <clears throat> sorry, there's pressure in telling people um, do this because it doesn't come naturally to them. And that's what I was saying at the beginning, like don't just post, especially if it doesn't come naturally to you. Like you were saying, some people might just have 200 followers. What's that going to do? Some people might just have 20. It's just a, a family account. Whatever comes natural to you, you should do. So some people I know, especially after Black Lives Matter movement, love reading and love reading novels. So they decided to just read novels by people they don't normally read novels by. And, you know, there's so many amazing African books and novels, um, specifically Nigerian books. I can recommend books like Half of the Yellow Sun, um, Americana, um, Stay With Me, The Thing Around Your Neck. <laughs> amazing, amazing books. And um, literally, I just think that there's so many things that can be done. Yes, watching a documentary on Netflix, or not even a documentary on Netflix, a movie on Netflix. Many people um, learn through watching movies. So you can watch a movie. And um, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm sure you're fine with me saying this, Seb, but we can see each other, and Seb just showed me that. He has Americana. Have you read it yet? Not just yet. It's on, basically, I do like um, I do like a book club with my friend. And so each each month we choose like a book each. And then like we do that, we read those. And so I was just thinking when you said Americana, I was like, I've got that. So yeah, this is on the, uh, I'm reading it ne- over Christmas, actually. 
it's on the Christmas reading list. So, uh, oh, you're yeah. gonna love it. You're gonna love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Please tell me what you think when you finish it because I'm currently reading it now, and a lot. Oh, okay. I've read her books. Yeah, I've read her books before. I've read Purple Hibiscus, um, and it's amazing. Half of the Yellow Sun actually has a film, and half of the Yellow Sun is about the Nigerian Civil War. So, a lot of novelists actually use um, experiences to to write. So if you're if you're someone that likes to read, you can read African books. You can read about the African experience. Um, I've got a few on my phone that I can recommend that are not necessarily about Africa, but just about the black experience. You know, there's so many things, for example, like the author Mallory Blackman. She's written about things. I don't know if people realize, but Noughts and Crosses is basically about the black experience. But if it was the other way around, um, there's this book that I downloaded recently called uh oh I can't find it but but basically it's 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 about the black experience and it's it's just so amazing there's oh yeah this one why I'm no longer talking to white people about race that's a really informative book about race um and like Seb said there's a documentary so there's a documentary on Netflix called The Making of an African Colony and it talks about how Nigeria was made basically and how the borders were carved out to make the country um there's a few um you know, there's a lot of films on Nigeria that will tell you, that will just show you about African life, you know, will change your mind about perceptions and how a, a lot of Africans are living quite well um, um, and and how Africans are going through a lot of things like human trafficking. There's an amazing film on Netflix about human trafficking in Nigeria called Olata, and it's... Uh, I, I couldn't watch it in one day. I had to watch it in two because it really broke my heart. <laughs> and it's about human trafficking in Nigeria and prostitution. Um, there's a book, there's a film that just came out on Netflix called Citation. And that's about um, lecturers, African lecturers exploiting um, African students, namely male lecturers exploiting young African students and offering sex, for, making them offer sex for grades. Um, which, you know, is based on a true story, but it's an amazing um, film. And so these things can educate you. You know, it's not that we're telling you to go to the library or, or go and read, you know, academic journals. We're just, we're, we just want people to be more educated about Africa and about the black experience and whichever way suits you. None of these things might, you may hate watching films and reading books, but I'm sure you know somebody that um, is of a different race to you. It doesn't even have to be African, of a different ethnic minority. Why not find out about their culture by by talking to them? Because if Seb had met us and decided not to talk to us, he would have never known about our culture. And I would have never known about Seb's culture. I learned so much about Italy. I learned how, because I used to think like... Um, when I went to Italy, how come there's food everywhere? But I realized that food is part of Italian culture, like Italians bond over food. And I just think that that's so amazing and so beautiful because I'm a massive foodie. So you just learn so much by talking to people, by interacting with people and by just maybe following people online that you wouldn't normally follow. So, um, yeah, I'm so happy and so impressed at the efforts that people have made recently um, to really understand African culture and the black experience, especially in the UK. And um, the sort of 
compassion that's been going around in the world I think if 2020 has been one year or something it's been a year of compassion like people have actually sat up and like realized that wow um this life is not just about me people are going through serious issues in the world um not only are we in the middle of a pandemic but people are you know go through issues on a daily basis and have been going through years imagine if it ne- all never happened. So I'm really happy with everything that's been going on. And I'm I'm so excited. Like, you know me, I'm such an optimistic person in the sense that I feel like all of this is actually for the good. Like, yeah, it might seem like the world is coming to an end, but I think it's just starting. Like people are starting to be compassionate. People are starting to be loving, considerate of other people. And if it wasn't for, yes, obviously lives have been lost, which is so sad of COVID and other situations and people have lost their jobs and everything, people have actually slowed down to think about more than themselves and more than their own immediate families. And um, people like Africans are getting noticed. And I think if there wasn't a lockdown or COVID, and this whole NSARS thing happened, I don't think the noise would have been so loud. But because people have been at home and online, they've gotten to know and they've gotten to support us. So I personally, um, as a British Nigerian, want to thank everybody, especially you, Seb. Like, when I say that people do things that feel comfortable to them, you've done it in the sense that you messaged me and the first thing you said is, if there's anything we can do, let me know. I'd love to have you on the podcast because that's your way of helping. You don't necessarily have to like post infographics, post lots of stuff online because your podcast can reach so many people that like to listen to podcasts. So it's what naturally comes to you. You can learn through so many podcasts about Africa, about black people, um, and watching videos on YouTube. There's so many resources. So I would just say, do what suits you, you know? I don't want to force anybody to do anything. Um, doesn't feel right. Because when it doesn't feel right, it's not coming from a place of love. Um, so yeah. A really a really good one, which I, I know is going to be hard for people who are listening now, and especially in the UK where there's a current lockdown going on. But when that's over, especially if you live in like a multicultural city like London, I mean, I've always thought, this is why Brexit hurt me so much, but I always thought, England's strength was its diversity um, and maybe the lack of the English culture or the dilution of the English culture is actually its own strength and one of the great things you can do if you live in London or you live in one of these really you know Birmingham Manchester wherever is like choose like on a month like if you have a girlfriend or you're with your boys or whatever you're with, or with your girlfriends if you're going listening whatever choose like and let's say look every month yeah or like if we're going to go out for every week for dinner like just to meet up with each other like why don't instead of we always go to the same place and we're always getting the same like burger and chips like look i live in london like there's so many places like why don't we actually go this one time to like a nigerian spot why don't we go to a ghanaian spot why don't we go to a jamaican spot why don't we go to a blah 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 spot and i know like i get it sometimes it feels really uncomfortable like trust me as a white person who's done my best since like 10 years old to like really throw myself into like black culture sometimes it is weird and sometimes you do feel like you stick out like a sore thumb like i remember when michael took me to his church there's two thousand nigerians dancing in oh a my god church. <laughs> I, am, I am the only white person there you can't get more uncomfortable than that okay 
But yeah. like when you put when you put yourself in those situations, and I know people are thinking, oh yeah, but I don't want to just go to like a Nigerian place or whatever Jamaican restaurant, and it's all gonna be like Jamaican English, and I'm gonna go there, and I don't even know what to order, and I'm so out of my comfort zone. But like, trust me, like if you go there and you talk to the restaurateur, and you're like, hi, like I don't really know much about like Nigerian food, like what is jollof rice, what is pounded jam, what is this Egasi soup, and like blah blah, I'm guarantee you that restaurateur will like pour in just like pure yeah. enthusiasm and they'll explain it all yeah. to you and they'll say oh what food do you like do you like spicy food do you like heavy food do you like what kind of what's the your type of and then they'll recommend and then from there you can talk to them oh like well why is this from that and what ingredient and then you like strike up a little conversation and then like instead of having your boring nandos that you have every single day that all you're helping is this multinational you're helping a little family rest run restaurant and yeah. you're learning about culture in like a really great like fun way like who doesn't love yeah. food do you know what i mean that's a great way to do it and i feel like exactly. sometimes we feel like like it has to be books and like films do you know what i mean because it's like that's very obvious right it's like oh i'm yeah, reading exactly. i must be learning but like you mm. can learn through eating or like you can yeah. learn through like going to the theater do you know what i mean like yeah. stop going to wicked how many times have you seen wicked on the west end do you know the <laughs> plot now that's it leave wicked till next year find like a maybe find like somewhere that's more like local to you oh, and like find yeah. do you know what i mean or like and all of these things and then like you'll get to learn and, and i think like i think we get so caught up as well you know in identity and i think it's a real i think it's like i always talk about with jim like this and i it's something we always talk about. I think like maybe eight out of 10 of our conversations somehow are revolved to identity. Cause I'm a strong believer that like you have to have an identity because I think it's something that gives you confidence. But I also think like if you believe too much in your identity, it can hold you back. And I feel yeah. like sometimes we feel like, Oh, I'm white. I can't go to like, uh, you know, uh, Clapham, comedy center because that's going to be filled with black people black comedy and i'm not going to get it but i would just go there and if you don't find it funny well fuck it you've had a couple of beers you leave yeah. it's no big deal exactly. do you know what i mean but like but yeah. then you might go there and you might find the new the new mo gilligan and boom there now you're and then and then you're gonna be like oh my god like they're gonna be like who's this white guy here and then after a while if you keep on going yeah they're just gonna accept you i i, I basically forced myself on you guys do you know what i mean like it wasn't <laughs> but that's just how it is because i was just interested yeah. i was like well this is something i've never seen before they're talking about things i've never heard before they dance in a way i've never seen before like what is this stuff yeah. and then you just and then do you know what i mean and it's like i think sometimes we think of it like i don't belong like, oh, that's a Nigerian gaff. That's a Jamaican gaff. This is, oh, this is an English place and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if we were just more like, you know what? Let's just share it. Like, let's just, you're, it doesn't matter that you're white. Eat some jollof rice. And it doesn't matter if you eat it wrong or whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you're yeah. just trying. Who cares? Like, and just don't take yourself too seriously with it. Then you can like, it's beautiful to learn about cultures that way. Do you know what yeah, I mean? And so I, I, I agree. <laughs> Yeah. Honestly, I, I, think, like, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, man. I, I Listen, put it this way. I've, bless him, Michael, right? This is quite funny. So we're recording right now. I think today is the, is it the 13th, I believe? I told yeah, Michael I was coming, 13th of November. I told Michael I was coming to London on the 12th of December. He, for some reason, read it wrong. And he thought I said the 12th of November. So then he <laughs> texts me. He texts me at like 4 p.m. And he goes, um bro like how's your flight he sends me his like because i was gonna stay at his house right he sends me like his his um address blah, blah blah and i'm like bro like i'm not coming for another month and he's like nah and i'm like yeah and he's like i got the towels ready i've been cleaning the house for a whole oh day 
bought him food and I was like, bro, it's not that serious. Like all I need is a sofa. It's fine. But like, it's funny because it bless him. But what I'm really looking forward to, I was like, Michael, you know, when I come back here, yeah, I need you to take me to like some Nigerian joints because I haven't had like proper jollof rice for a good minute now. And I need yeah. some. And like, I'm looking forward to that experience. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah. maybe, maybe you don't have the confidence to go in like you and your three blonde mates to a Nigerian restaurant. Okay, fair enough. But I'm like you said, I'm sure you know someone who's Nigerian. Yeah. I'm sure you go to I'm sure you go to a work with someone or whatever. And you could just say to them, hey, like, um, I've seen that there's this new Nigerian spot open up in Brixton. Would you fancy going with me like one night after work? I guarantee you that person would be like, oh shit, this person's actually paying attention to my culture. They're not gonna be like, nah, you're white, you're not allowed type thing. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like you said, Africans are mad hospitable. And I just feel like if we took that initiative, you know, then like honestly, it's Pandora's box once you get in there, because there's so much to every every culture. I mean, I love learning about culture, it's, it's my thing, I get off on it, but like I just feel yeah. like if people there's all I'm trying to say is that there's different ways of doing it, you know, like it can be books and films are great and maybe they're the most obvious, but you've got the music, you've got the food, you've got the theater, like there's all different ways. The comedy, do you know what I mean? Like if you go to an Irish comedy night and you go to a, like a black British comedy night, there's going to be there's two very different forms of comedy. There. Different, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? You're going to learn from that one way or the other. You'll be like, oh fuck, like this is how they see the world, like this is their perspective. Do you get me? And it's an interesting way of doing things, man. I think there's so many different ways to get to get into it but listen that's a conversation maybe for another time but definitely um, honestly yeah i just want to thank you for coming on chris i know we've been trying for a while now there's been bad internet (laughs) there's been your dad watching the tv in the background (laughs) we've managed to persevere and we've finally got a podcast out there and um i'm really happy that we did that and uh look i'll put all of your obviously all of the links if anyone wants to follow christina or listen to the podcast or anything like that we'll put all the links in the show notes for sure um but yeah until next time chris uh just thank you i really appreciate it thank you so much well Seb can see my face i wish like sometimes <laughs> in podcasts people can see your face but Seb can see how how massive grin i have because like yeah. it's it's so nice to know that I was part of your cultural journey of loving different cultures and even you too. Like, I think you made me so much more interested in learning, especially about European cultures that when I was able to go to France for a year abroad and I had Italian friends and I had Spanish friends, you know, they reminded me so much of you because you had already taught me so much about that. So I totally understand with the, um, cultures but by the way if michael is taking you to a nigerian place tell yeah. him there's actually a place near where he lives called 805 if it's not I've 805 as well there's another place in lewisham called Enish. i feel like i'm plugging businesses and this is not sponsored by the right. way but they have authentic you know like nigerian food like the nigerian Jollof rice should taste a bit smoky, like it's burnt at the bottom yeah. a little bit. And that's when you know that you've got the good rice. So, like, yeah, just tell Michael to take you, take you to those two places. And I really right. hope you have a great trip. And honestly, yeah. I am, I feel like it's such a privilege to be on your show. Thank you so, so, so much. And I can't wait to be back. Honestly, I can't oh, wait to be back. Not at all. Michael, if you're listening to this and you take me to any whack Nigerian places, yeah, now I've been told by two people. 
Christina and Umar, who's coming out next year from Dope Black Dads. He also says 805. So Michael has pressure now, you know. If he's taking me to some dub place, <laughs> I'm having words with him. But uh, but yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And I can't wait for you to have you back on the podcast next year at some point. Thank you so much, Seb. Thanks, guys, for listening. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.